During the neuropathology portion of second-year medical school classes across the country, pretty much everyone learns about this Alzheimer guy and a patient of his with symptoms including short-term memory loss. After the patient's death and autopsy, he discovered plaques and tangles in the brain tissue, which in my medical student mind turned into the idea that plaques and tangles always equal dementia. Of course, I knew there are other types of neuropathology out there, but the bottom line seemed like once you get these misfolding or misaggregating proteins in the brain, you develop dementia. End of story. So imagine my surprise during fellowship to have a lecture where I learned that, in fact, neuropathology actually explains relatively little, or at least only part, of the range of cognition that adults demonstrate. In other words, there are some people with relatively few plaques and tangles who have significantly impaired cognition, while others have lots of these plaques and tangles but are cognitively normal. Sadly, I was too far along in my training to become a neuropathologist at that point, but it was fascinating to learn about this interplay between neuropathology and cognition, and it seems like these issues have pretty significant implications for dementia prevention or treatment. Today, we're fortunate to welcome some guests to help us explore this. I'm Matt Davis. And I'm Donovan Most. You're listening to Mining Memory, a podcast devoted to exploring research on Alzheimer's disease and other related dementias. So our guests today are Dr. Eileen Graham and Dr. Dan Mrozak. Drs. Graham and Mrozak are both faculty at Northwestern University with interests in how personality factors influence physical and cognitive health over the life course. Dr. Graham is the first author of the paper we'll discuss today, and Dr. Mrozak is the senior author. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So I wanted to begin, um, in the background of your article, there's this statement Uh, that one study showed that only 40% of cognitive decline is explained by neuropathologies. So just a couple questions related to that statement. Um, First, a little detail-oriented, can you actually explain, so how is neuropathology actually quantified? It's not like you like weigh the plaques and tangles. So where do you come up with that measure? So in the studies or the data sets that we use to uh, analyze the data for this article, Uh, One of the uh, elements of consent when people joined the study was that they consented to uh, being autopsied after they died. So after the study tracked these individuals over the course of the full study period, um, they died of whatever natural causes they died of. And then the study then autopsied their brains, um, allowing the researchers or the clinicians as part of the research project to actually gather uh, the neuropathologic data based on those autopsies. Is it sort of, is it like a stain that's being quantified? Yes, that is one of the ways that they, um, they did, one of the things that they measured as they were doing the autopsy was staining was one of the techniques. Yeah, they take uh, coronal slices uh, of, the, of the brain and then um, uh, uh, essentially do counts of different key um, uh, uh, dementia-related neuropathologies, you know, such as tau proteins, uh, amyloid plaques, Lewy bodies, things like that. There were also there were a number of other um, indicators that they collected in addition to the uh, more traditional plaques and tangles, like Dan mentioned, TDP forty-three. Uh, but then they also uh, gathered information on hippocampal sclerosis, 
uh, microinfarcts, Lewy bodies, arthrosclerosis, um, and arterial sclerosis. So only 40% of cognitive decline being explained by neuropathology is kind of surprising. Like, how should people sort of make sense of that? That's a, that's a great question. Uh, it means that um, on, only a fraction of the, of the kind of like clinical, you know, um, you know, co- uh, the, the clinical aspects of, of cognitive functioning decline, you know, are related to this underlying uh, neuropathology. Um, you think there would be a one-to-one correspondence between, you know, there's, there's lots of neuropathology, there should be uh, uh, cognitive decline and uh, clinical dementia, but it's not a one-to-one relationship. There are people who are living with the disease. They have lots of neuropathology in their brain, but they're not showing the, the clinical syndromes, you know, of dementia or even even substantial, you know, subclinical uh, cognitive decline. It's that disparity, this discordance, that is so interesting. Um, and um, and so so what you know, there's lots of other things that are going on. Obviously, uh, with that other sixty percent, what are the things that are accounting for um, the, this cognitive? Uh, this cognitive decline other than neuropathology. And that's one of the things that we explored in this paper. Personality is one of them, but there's others as well. We can get to that later in the podcast. Yeah. So as personality researchers, we are by nature, we study individual differences. Uh, So across everything that we study, we're interested in explaining variation on various outcomes. Um, so the fact that 40% of cognitive decline can be explained by neuropathologies means a couple things to us. So we're usually, when we are saying something like that, we're speaking in fairly statistical terms, like in terms of a regression model, the amount of variation in neuropathology that can be explained by cognitive decline, um, from a statistical modeling standpoint, 40% is actually quite a bit. Um, but that also leaves room for other factors to then explain the additional variation in neuropathology. And that's where uh, personality comes in, at least from our um, interest standpoint. So that was like a perfect segue to the next question. So the, um, the title of your paper is Associations Between Personality Traits and Cognitive Resilience in Older Adults. Um, so for listeners, uh, psychologists or neuropsychologists, uh, when they think about or talk about personality, you'll um, hear these specific traits that are often retur- referred to as the big five, which are neuroticism, conscientiousness, openness, extroversion, and agreeableness. So I'm wondering for our guests, if you could kind of run us through those big five and like if you were talking to somebody at a dinner party and trying to explain what each one of them kind of capture um, c- could you talk us through those? We would love to. <laughs> yeah, so maybe I'll start with um, maybe I'll start with neuroticism. So um, again, first of all, think of these. Um, think of all the big five traits, uh, like the way you would think of SAT scores. You know, they're um, continua. They are um, you know dimensions. Um, the way you would think of SAT math ability or SAT verbal ability. They're, they're kind of like, you know, think of like the 99th percentile going all the way through the 50th percentile down to the first percentile. So neuroticism, think of like the most anxious, fearful, uh, stressed out person that you know. That person's probably, you know, well, you're a psychiatrist. So, <laughs> so, you, you know, so it's kind of like you probably know like people who are perpetually experiencing negative emotion. Those are individuals that are kind of at the 90th, 90th, 95th percentile or higher. 
I can imagine people who are in the middle ranges, you know, 60th percentile, 50th, 40th, and so on. And then imagine like the lower ends, you know, of, of that range, people at the, at the 20th, 10th, 5th percentile, you know, those are people who are just kind of um, from a dispositional perspective, just very cool, calm, collected, don't get stressed out very much, experiencing very, very low levels of, of negative affect, even when there's a, there's a stressor present. That would, be, that would be the dimension of neuroticism. Um, Eileen, why don't you pick the next big five trait? All right. So thank you. Um, so conscientiousness um, is describing a person's tendency towards um, efficiency, organization, motivation, um, they, people who score high on conscientiousness are typically very motivated and achievement oriented. They tend to be very planful and kind of think, thinking ahead and following through on tasks. Whereas somebody who's very low on conscientiousness might be, have a tendency towards impulsivity, have self-control issues. They tend to be less organized and put things off to the last minute. Um, and there's not necessarily a, so it, it's, it's separate from neuroticism where there's not an emotional component to it, whereas they're not anxious about the fact that they put things off to the last minute. It's just, this is the choice that I've made. And now I have to live with the consequences of this. <laughs> um, so also like Dan said, these are all on, um, a dimension. So everybody has all of these traits and they, uh, would score, you know, high or low or somewhere in the middle. So there's a, a distribution for all of these traits. So people kind of fall somewhere in the middle or off to the sides of a, the average. I was going to ask if they were mutually exclusive, but it sounds like there's a lot of overlap now. No. And I think that's one of the, uh, th one of the constant, I think, uphill battles that uh, we are constantly in as personality psychologists is that we're always uh, fighting with the ideas around like pop personality inventories that really put people into bins. Um, and that, uh, you know, so pe people do not fall into discrete categories ne as neatly as we would like. Um, if you say I'm an introvert, but sometimes I feel kind of, you know, extroverted. I like being social. Um, that doesn't mean you're, you know, a bad introvert. It means that you fall on a continuum, not into a discrete category. Um, so that's why we um, speak very specifically in terms of these traits that they, they, they are a continuum or a dimension um, and you can be high or low or somewhere in the middle. Since Eileen just mentioned uh, extroversion, I guess I'll do that one next. So extroversion, introversion, um, same thing. It's a continuum. Um, and by the way, you can like flip these continua. It's, you know, it would be like, you know, instead of instead of SAT math ability being like 99 percentile being, being high and 1% being low, you can, you, you know, you can flip it. It's just, it's arbitrary. Um, so just typically, um, you know, it's at the researcher's discretion that, you know, so well, you know, we can put extroversion at the 99th percentile. So imagine, you know, imagine the person in your life that is the most gregarious, the most loving of like social activity, the one, the person that you know in your life, you know, that who is, you know, like really craving of like social activity, really, really enjoys being around people. That, that person's probably pretty high on extroversion. They're probably like probably at least above the 90th percentile, 90th percentile or more. Um, there's lots of people that you know who would be like in the middle ranges, obviously. 
maybe leaning to one side or the other. And then think of like the shyest person that you know. Think of the person that that really would prefer to be kind of alone at home reading a book. Um, that person is probably down, you know, at the lower end of that particular dimension, more towards the introverted end, like maybe around the, you know, 15th, 10th, 5th, uh, 5th percentile. On introverts and on, on introversion, or on, on this on this particular uh, um, dimension. So, openness to experience uh, is a trait that is most closely characterized by somebody who um, is very curious, very inventive, very um, willing to go out and explore the world. Not necessarily in a social way, but in more of an exploratory way. These people tend to be much more highly educated, um, and it's very closely associated with uh, higher intelligence. And finally, agreeableness versus the other the other end, you know, sometimes it's called hostility or um, kind of like lack of warmth or something like that or, or unkindness. Um, it's, it's this dimension that essentially gets at friendliness or, you know, warmth versus unfriendliness. People high in agreeableness are very kind, very nice people. There's a lot of empirical research indicating that. Uh, people high in agreeableness are people are are really good people to be married to, <laughs> um, uh, and so uh, they 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 tend to have like longer marriages and so on. Um, and then you know at the other end of the spectrum, you have people who are like you know like highly disagreeable. So think of like the kind of the most curmudgeonly person that you know in your life. That person is probably down at the lower end of of, of that dimension, uh, like not so not so warm, you know, not so nice, and so on. So that so that that's what that dimension is. Are the big five a pretty kind of settled construct? Like, is there still bickering over whether or not it matters? Or are people like on board the big five matter? Scientists will always bicker. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it, there's agreement that it's a good course level, you know? So like it's, if, 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 you know, uh, Dan McAdams, our, our colleague here at Northwestern has called it the psychology of the stranger. Um, what are, the, what are the five things you need to know about like a stranger, you know, uh, when you first meet somebody, you know, like, well, you know, this is a person kind of social, you know, extroversion is the person, you know, kind of how's the person going to handle, like handle stress and neuroticism, you know, is, you know, is the person reliable, conscientious, you know, what are the, you know, the, the psychology of the stranger, very big, but you don't know a person really, you know, just the big five. You might know the person's percentile scores on the big five. Doesn't, doesn't, doesn't tell you very much uh, about the person in a deep way. You don't know their loves, their desires, you know, their motives, things like that. Um, you know, so personality does go a lot deeper. But the big five is there's agreement that, like, yeah, it's, it's a decent course level of personality. Um, some people are getting into like, well, what's a, is there a finer level of traits? And then other people are getting into like, well, completely other aspects of personality, like, like narrative identity. Like so there's more to personality than just a big five, but there is agreement that it's, yeah, it's, you know, for, for a basic model of personality, it's not too bad. And how is it measured? Typically self-reports, uh, but there's uh, some pretty good um, external, like, informant reports where you you might have friends, you know, or... or um, caregiver. Or, yeah, oh, yeah, caregiver. Yeah, a lot, yeah, and a lot of caregiving research caregivers, um, family members. Um, uh, in school settings, classmates, you know, so there's a, there's a, there's an honored tradition of having, uh, external, like, like other, other reports, but, but I'd say probably most of the time it's self-reports. 
Yeah. And it's usually a series of items um, or statements that people have to rate the extent to which they agree that that statement describes them. Like, I tend to be very organized. One being highly disagree, four being, or five being highly agree. Um, So for each of the traits, there's usually, you know, a handful of items sometimes upwards of 20, depending on the exact tool um, used to measure the the big five. And there's several out there. Um, So people rate how much they agree or how well that statement describes them or how well this adjective describes them. Um, And then those are aggregated in some way to create like a composite score of that trait. Having having a partner rate a person is kind of interesting it's like oh i I think i'm really agreeable and they're like i don't know about that i don't know about that (laughs) (laughs) there is actually some pretty cool research uh, mainly mainly done by samin vizier who was at washu st louis and later uc davis uh on um uh um disparity between um other reports and self-reports and the, the the one the one where you find actually the most is actually agreeable to this. And most people say like, oh, I'm a nice person, but like a lot of other people are like, well, no, you're really not. The the, the, <laughs> the one where the, the one where there's actually the most uh uh, uh where self force are actually the best is actually neuroticism. You know, it's it, you know people tend to know um they tend to know themselves when it comes to things like depression and anxiety. It's like yeah, I, I I'm feeling negative emotions right now, and I'm the one feeling them, and so. I can self-report on that, but other people, other people are not able to do so. So it's, it's kind of, it's, you know, uh, other people, uh, other reports are also pretty good for, um, uh, extroversion as well. People can usually tell like, yeah, yeah, you're an extrovert. <laughs> so there's a, that's an interesting line of research. For your study, you used, uh, two ongoing cohort studies in the Chicago area. I think we've talked about one, maybe both of them with previous guests. So the religious order study and the rush memory and aging project, um, at a very high level, could you just um, explain to us what were your exposures and outcomes of interest? What were your hypotheses going in? And did you find what you expected to find? Or were you surprised by your findings at all? The, so the very basics of the study were we used the relig- data from the Religious Order Study and the Rush Memory and Aging Project to analyze, uh, to answer our questions uh, both of these data sets are based out of the Rush University Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Uh, the Religious Order Study started in the early 90s, and the Memory and Aging Project started about 10 years later. Um, and they were kind of meant to be like, like paired with one another. So the religious order, the, the design and the methodology is essentially the same. Um, the key difference between the two is that religious order study is based solely on uh, priests and nuns and other people in religious orders, uh, whereas the Rush Memory and Aging Project is strictly uh, community-dwelling older adults in the Chicago area. Um, So when people signed up for the study or consented to being in the study, one of the first things they did was fill out a personality inventory and basically uh, gave data, provided data on their big five personality traits um, at what we call baseline. And then over the course of the study, um, among other things, there were many, many things studied or collected in these two studies uh, they they provided cognitive data at every measurement occasion, which occurred annually. 
Um, and this was a, a, pr- a pretty broad cognitive battery where they um, did uh, working memory tasks, episodic memory tasks, speed of processing, executive functioning, among other things, um, to provide um, a pretty complete picture of what their cognitive function is at every wave of measurement, which is yearly. So that gives us like some very, very rich data on how their cognitive function is progressing throughout their older adulthood. And then uh, as uh, these individuals would die throughout the life of the study, then uh, their brains were autopsied. So we have that neuropathologic data at the very end of their participation. Um, so what we expected to find, we had a couple key hypotheses, um, mostly around neuroticism, conscientiousness, and openness to experience. Um, those tend to be the three traits that um, are most consistently associated with various cognitive outcomes um, in the existing literature. Uh, so for this particular study where we were uh, creating an index of cognitive resilience, Uh, we expected to find those three traits to also be related. Um, Mostly that openness and conscientiousness, people who score higher on those two traits, we expected them to have better or more cognitive resilience. And people with neuroticism or higher in neuroticism, we expected them to have lower cognitive resilience or more more cognitive vulnerability. And so Um, to be clear for when you're saying cognitive resilience, you mean given the level of neuropathology they have, their cognitive function is better than you would have expected. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. Yes, exactly. So what we did, uh, once we had this data, we took all of the neuropathological indicators, um, of which there were many, um, and we regressed uh, cognitive function onto those neuropathologic indicators. So in a regression model, um, that essentially means um, we have all of this variance in cognitive function, how well does neuropathology predict that? Or how much of the variance in cognition does neuropathology account for? And whatever uh, variance was not accounted for gets extracted as this residual. So that residual variance is whatever is left over. And that gives us an indication of um, basically the extent to which somebody has better or worse cognition given their amount of neuropathology. Um, so that residual we then extracted from the model and used that as our key outcome. So somebody with a higher score, which we named, named the residual cognitive resilience, somebody with a higher resilience score has better than expected cognitive function given the amount of neuropathology um, they had. And then somebody with a very low score has worse than expected cognitive function given the amount of neuropathology. That was really cool and a, and a great example of residuals, you know, using a residual for something other than just testing your model fit, right? Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, we should mention that like the, the overall regression line was as you would expect, it was negative. It was negative. So as, you know, the X axis, you know, on the X axis is these various indicators of neuropathology. So as neuropathology goes up, as it, you know, as there's greater amounts of neuropathology, um, there is lower uh, cognitive functioning, you know, whether it's last visit before death, you know, or the other version that Eileen mentioned, using all all of the yearly measurements. And we, we did it two ways. Um, in both, in, in, in both, you know, you have this like negative regression line, which is what you would expect, you know, like greater neuropathology, 
lower cognitive functioning. But of course, it's not perfect. You know, there's all this scatter, you know, around the line, you know, and, you know, the distances between every observed point and the predicted point are these residuals. And we can harness, we can harness those residuals um, in, uh, to get at this very interesting concept of cognitive resilience. You know? mm-hmm. So similar work has been done, um, but using a more discrete tools um, to measure this. So they've identified, so other studies have looked at kind of categorizing people, somebody with high pathology and high cognition, low pathology, low cognition, and then the opposite, if you're low, low on one, high in the other, high on one, low in the other. So those are like the concordant and discordant quadrants um, and seeing if we can describe people in each of those quadrants. Um, but using residuals is a very unique way um, of actually being able to keep that continuous information continuous and actually um, using all of that variance. Um, and so it gives um, a, a much richer picture into um, these other factors that can predict it. Is the basic underlying premise of this, though, this idea of looking at personality types and cognitive resilience, is it based on the assumption that different personalities elicit different specific behaviors? And is that kind of the the pathway of sort of causality you're imagining? Yes. So our general theoretical framework is that people with certain personality characteristics or higher levels of certain traits are more likely to either have the tools or go out and get the tools or do the things that are going to ultimately protect them. And that's what's then resulting in better or worse health outcomes later on in life. So it's kind of in a way like inherently a a mediation model, if you will. Um, But a lot of the work we do is just looking at these direct pathways. So how well can we predict health using personality? And then the next step is to look at how so do certain personality traits or people with high levels of certain personality characteristics more likely to engage in, you know, X behaviors that then predicts their health? There's a whole line of research that we were pursuing prior to getting into this cognitive resilience work that, I, that Eileen and I were pursuing and then uh, which I was pursuing when I was still at my, before I came to Northwestern, when I was at Purdue, um, that that exactly did what, what you had just mentioned, you know, where like, like well, what, why is personality related to mortality risk? Actually, that's what I was, you know, really into at the time. Uh, and um, it, it's it's definitely the case that, you know, when, when personality is related to any kind of health outcome, whether it's you know, some kind of, you know, you know, dementia risk or cognitive resilience or mortality risk or any other kind of, you know, physical health outcome. Um, um, it's it's typically through um, some kind of like health behavior, not always, but it's usually through some kind of like health behavior. Um, conscientiousness, for example, you're, say you're low in conscientiousness, you have impulse control, self-control issues, you're going to be much less likely to like take good care of yourself, you know, keep doctor appointments, be, you know, adherent to your medications, um, not exercise regularly, maybe engage in poor health behaviors, you know, that over many years will accumulate and lead to all a whole host of, of, of poor health outcomes down the road, um, including dementia risk, other risk, uh, increased risk for other physical um, health, uh, detrimental health outcomes, you know, um, and certainly, and certainly um, um, increased mortality risk as well. But yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly where um, the, the pathway, that's the, yeah. And Eileen, actually Eileen has a great paper from 2017. 
that actually shows um, in, multi, in multiple studies uh, uh, showing uh, the, um, the the effect of smoking as a as a health behavior that that kind of comes in between um, personality and mortality risk. In the discussion, there's a um, occasionally use of the phrase "healthy neuroticism." Is the idea there sort of you're neurotic, which you think might reduce resilience, but if it's kind of channeled in a healthy, productive way, maybe it promotes resilience. Possibly. I sort of put like an oxymoron, kind of. Yeah. Well, that, that's that's the idea, but <laughs> we've been searching for evidence for the idea, <laughs> and we, it's it's so, been elusive. It, this is a line of research that we have been pursuing. Um, and there are many ways that one could define healthy neuroticism. The way that we have defined it in the past is um, the interaction between conscientiousness and neuroticism. So essentially asking, what if somebody is both high in conscientiousness and neuroticism? Does the, do the negative effects of, of neuroticism overriding the positive effects of being conscientious or could, is it possible that somebody's high conscientiousness is kind of um, ameliorating the negative impacts of a person's neuroticism? So uh, we've, we did this a couple years ago with one, um, this project we did where we looked at that interaction across a range of health behaviors, health outcomes, and mortality. And we actually found that um, it seems most closely related to health behaviors, but not it, that does not seem to extend to actual health outcomes or relate to mortality at all. Um, so, like Dan said, it tend it, it is a little bit elusive. Um, there there could be other ways of defining it that might be that might be better able to capture um, the health benefits. Uh, but it does seem to be related to like your likelihood of engaging in health behaviors. Um, so when we're talking about this cognitive resilience project, um, we found it really interesting that the two traits that were related to cognitive resilience were conscientiousness and neuroticism, but separately. So people who were higher in neuroticism tended to have lower, uh, cognitive resilience and people with higher conscientiousness tended to have higher cognitive resilience. So then the question that we would like to ask and probably will in a future project at some point is if we interact the two, will we find that being high in both is better for cognitive resilience or worse? When you say interact, you mean people that have both. Right, exactly. Yeah, the idea is um, does like the high anxiety of, of neuroticism, you know, kind of, you know, combine with the kind of like um, – motivational aspects of high conscientiousness so say you, you you see something on your skin and you're like and you you say like oh my god you know i, I you know, oh my goodness i need you know i i, I you know this, this scares me i really need to get it checked out and so it's both the anxiety combination of like the fear and the anxiety like that you know like what is this thing you know combined with like the fact that you're high conscientious and you're kind of like you're 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 motivated to like take action um that both those things together you know get you to the doctor to get it checked out and if it's nothing that's fine you know but what if it is something then you've caught it really early so that's kind of the idea um underlying healthy neuroticism it's an idea that was um first uh, um postulated about 22 years ago by howard friedman at uh, uc riverside he's retired now but um, it's a great idea um 
we've struggled to come up with empirical proof for it. <laughs> this next question I have is um, probably a little bit too much in the weeds, but you know, one of the cohorts that you said that you used was this religious order study, which is made up of priests and nuns, right? D did you have any concerns about that group when you're looking at personality and cognitive resilience being different somehow in terms of their behaviors and how their personalities might not sort of manufacture different types of, you know, behavioral stuff? Absolutely. <laughs> um, it is a very, very unique sample. And that's part of why we paired it with the uh, memory and aging project. So we could see in addition to like the uniqueness of the priests and nuns, when paired with the community dwelling older adults, what kind of pattern do you see? Um, from a statistical power standpoint, uh, we're not really at a point where we can look very easily at the two samples separately because, you know, we need to wait for enough people to die to really model this in a way that is um, robust and convincing. Um, so currently the analyses have been done with the two together, um, but it would be really interesting to kind of run the same analysis on both samples separately and then talk about the differences that we see. So is there something unique about being in a religious order that is either, um, you know, biasing the sample in a positive way? Like, are they, um, is there an advantage to being in a religious order or is it disadvantageous? We don't know. One thing about the religious order study is, um, so one of the other factors that is related to um, cognitive resilience um, is education. Um, that's an obvious one. You know, the, the more years of education you have, the more you, you know, the more you're likely to, you know, kind of have this, um, this greater amount of resilience that you can like tolerate the neuropathology. Uh, cognitively engaging careers are also another factor. So this is known from other research. Um, the thing about people of, of you know priests and nuns is that the you know especially born of this era, they were all born like I think Eileen in the 1920s and 30s. Compared to their cohort mates, people born around those same decades, you know 20, 1920s, 1930s, they all would have had bachelor's degrees, and many of them would have had master's degrees. Um, and so they were more educated than the, than the people, than other people of that typical generation. Um, and so they probably had higher levels of cognitive resilience, at least in the re religious order study. The MAP uh, people, however, were probably more representative you know, of the general population. I, I should ask this back when we were uh, first asking you to explain the, the big five, uh, but do these change over time or are they pretty much like a fixed characteristic? We love this question. That's an empirical question, and we love it. <laughs> but one, but one we have an answer to, because so, we've actually spent a lot of years. Of, so I want you to start out, Eileen, and then I can chime in at the end. <laughs> yeah. So one of our biggest papers that we put out recently was looking across, I think, sixteen independent data sets um, that have been tracking people across the world of varying age ranges. Um, the extent to which their big five personality traits change over time. And there is evidence for change, but it's a relatively small amount, like enough to be statistically significant. But in general, we do see patterns of change over time, enough to be convincing that studies should be measuring this frequently throughout the life of their study, because changing personality could be as if not more influential on a person's health uh, later on. And that's particularly relevant to cognitive health because for some, even in the DSM, 
personality change can be considered a symptom of dementia if it's extreme enough. Um, so actually tracking a person's personality change throughout like their healthy or possibly prodromal years um, is it could be really useful information for understanding whether or not somebody is likely to develop um, severe cognitive dysfunction or dementia later on. And do all five change or is it kind of one or two in particular that are the movers? We see patterns for change in all of them. Um, the most extreme being neuroticism. Um, and then to a lesser extent, extroversion, conscientiousness. Um, and then the weakest ones that we found were for agreeableness. Um, but we're still unpacking why. We found that for some studies, agreeableness went up on average. For some, it went down on average. Um, but there also tends to be um, more measurement differences in the way people ask about agreeableness in the various studies. So we still need to disentangle whether that's uh, a measurement thing or a true uh, difference in change. There are individual differences um, in personality change. You know, so personality itself, um, like depression, like anxiety, like math ability, like verb ability, is these personality changes are individual differences, variables. Well, personality change is also an individual differences variable. That is, some people change, and some people change a lot, and other people are stable. You know, so in any study, if you do these like growth curve models, these multi-level models, um, you can you you will find some individuals, you know, who are some people are are pretty stable over over the lifespan. After you know adolescence, there's a lot of you know there's a lot of change in the childhood and adolescent years. There's a lot of brain development going on, and so for all the big for each of the big five traits, there's a lot there's a lot of change that's going on. You know, like prior to the adult years, but once you get to adulthood. Um, some people, some people dis display change, but other people state displays stability. So there's individual differences in change. Um, what Eileen says is correct. Like what predicts that change? That's been more elusive. Um, there's some theories about social roles and, um, you know, like the, taking on different social roles that that might be related, you know, that is, you know, when you start a career, uh, partner, you know, with, with someone, have children, that that might promote, say, you know, conscientiousness, it might, you know, like lower neuroticism. There's some theories about that. And there's some evidence to suggest that that might be the case, you know, but in general, predictors of change are a little bit more elusive. But the general concept of of individual differences in change. Some people, some people are stable and some people are changing, you know, that's something that's been uh, shown by many studies across many countries. I, I must say, I am so relieved that we have empirical evidence that people, yes, can change. I, I suspect there might be an age threshold though, or it's probably pretty unlikely. <laughs> it actually went against a lot of dogma back in, um, you know, back in the, when, 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 when some of us in back in the 1990s were, were first showing this to be true. Uh, uh, there, there, it, it had become dogma that like, no, personality is stable for every, everybody. No one changes ever, you know? And that was, you know, like the 1980s, like when I was at University of Michigan as a postdoc, like in the early night, early in the 1990s, you know, it had really become dogma that the personality does not change, you know? But, uh, but then like by the late nineties, you know, those of us who were starting to do the first growth curve models on, you know, we were like, oh, wow. Yes. Yeah, so for some, some people are stable, but other people do show, so Show change. So. We run into trouble now when we're trying to uh, analyze data from some of these long-term longitudinal studies 
because when some many of them started back when the prevailing assumption was that personality is stable fortunately that is has changed that is not the dogma anymore but many of these data sets unfortunately only have personality measurements at that baseline assessment because they assumed it wasn't going to change we only need to measure it once um, so in this project, unfortunately, we can't study personality change and cognitive resilience because we only have a single measurement occasion. Yeah. Yeah. The rush studies are, I know we, Eileen and I had a conversation with the, with the director of the ADRC at rush, David Bennett, who's a good friend of ours. And, and he was like, he was like, yeah, you know, we were, we were told back in the nineties, that personality doesn't change. So you just, just measure it once. <laughs> Like, right, no. So if we could go back in our time machine and <laughs> tell them all, you have to keep measuring it. Has anybody ever looked at, you know, partners of different combinations of personality? I mean, I could sort of imagine that different personalities could affect behavior, right? It's an aversion area. I, I can see this is one area where we, we don't know a lot. Um, there's a lot of interest. Uh, I mean, how, how, you know, how do different uh, personality traits um interact with one another healthy neuroticism is the one uh, you know there's like a you know a whole, a whole theoretical paper came out and there were some tests and, you know looks like it like ah, maybe that that one's not going to work out perhaps um but there's but um there are uh, there are individuals or you know around the country and around the world that are kind of interested in like testing other combinations you know like the like what you know like how how do how do different traits interact with one another Right now, there's there's nothing really like clear or de- or definitive, um, but I but I'd say give it give it five or ten years, and I, I imagine there's going to be probably more papers than have time to read because <laughs> there's there's there there is there is a lot of interest among many among among many young researchers on on, on trying to answer these questions. It's a great question. Anything? Uh, any any final burning questions, Matt? Uh, I was just thinking it was kind of funny. This is a you know podcast on dimension. We focused on these personality things because I don't know they're kind of new to us. And I was thinking I was like, too bad you can't find five more, and then it would be the Big Ten. We can really put our stamp on it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, what, I mean, some of these like you know, um, I mean, we focused on we you know we've been working on you know personality as a predictor of you know kind of resilience, but like like we said earlier, there's a there's um others that have looked at other predictors and, you know, ed- education and then kind of like, you know, being in a cognitively engaged career. Those are two others where there's a fair amount of work. And so it's really kind of cool to think that like, you know, a, 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 a major health promoting variable is education, you know, like get educated, you know, and that will actually promote your health, it'll promote your cognitive health, it'll also promote your physical health, you know, because people who are have high levels of education tend to like, you know, live longer, they tend to have better health, you know, so it's kind of, a, you know, eat healthy, you know, exercise regularly, you know, take your medications as prescribed, you know, and get as many years of education as possible and you'll, you'll live a healthy life. <laughs> so thank you all so much for your time and sharing your expertise with us for now. I think that that's all. Thank you. That was really fun. Thank you guys so much for inviting us. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please consider subscribing to our podcast. Other episodes can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud, as well as directly from us at capra.med.umich.edu. 
where a full transcript of this episode is also available. On our website, you'll also find links to our seminar series and the data products we've created for dementia research. Music and engineering for this podcast was provided by Dan Langa. More information available at www.danlanga.com. Minding Memory is part of the Michigan Medicine Podcast Network. Find more shows at uofmhealth.org slash podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from the National Institute on Aging at the National Institutes of Health, as well as the Institute for Healthcare Policy and Innovation at the University of Michigan. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the NIH or the University of Michigan. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back soon. Thank you.